Have you had a busy week in the market? Not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud9fin, our suite of podcasts where we bring you the need to know information on deals, documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high yield, leverage loans, and restructuring spaces. We also have our US podcast, which features discussions with members of the North American Levfin market with US editor Will Cage Smith. So be sure to check in every second Thursday for that. I'm Catherine Hidalgo, a loans reporter at Ninefin, and I'll be your host for today when we'll be looking at 2022 covenant trends, economy, and the pitfalls of creating an ESG company database. But first, What's happening in European leveraged finance this week? INEOS and SGL Trans Group are the bond issuers of the week, while Agreco, Tencate Grass and ERN join them on the loan side, with INEOS also issuing almost $2 billion worth of loans. Iceland management confirmed on the 8th of February conference call that they are supremely confident of refinancing its 2025 notes within the next 12 months. Telepizza private equity sponsor KKR is set to walk away from the beleaguered Spanish fast food operator as part of the company's ongoing debt restructuring. Adler Group has scheduled its convening hearing for its UK restructuring plan for 24th of February 2023. A 93000000 million euro BWIC hit the secondary market with bids due this Wednesday gone, according to a source close to the situation. Recent BWIC activity has been spurred by Birch Lane Capital's exit from five equity warehouse positions that have now been taken over by Anchorage Capital. Jaguar Land Rover is expected to settle its upcoming 23 bond maturities with cash on balance sheet and Cineworld has reached out to 30 potential bidders ahead of a revised 16th of February 23 deadline for non-binding offers under the group's sale process. Next up, we have the Covenant Close-Up, where we dive into Covenant Trends. Today, I have with me Head of European High Yield Research, Brian Deering. Thanks so much for being with us today, Brian. Hey, Kat. Thanks for having me. It's been too long. I'm super excited. Um, So you today are going to be giving us a preview into a trends report you're going to be writing in the next few weeks. Is that right? Yeah, we're doing a report to look back on what happened in 2022 um, in the European bond space. And uh, I'm excited about the report, and there's a lot of good stuff that's going to be in it. And I thought it'd be fun today to just give a, a short um, preview of some of the, the headline stats that we're seeing in terms of covenant capacity and a few bits and pieces. So, yeah, that'll be fun. Very nice. Okay, so tell us about the, what kind of data you've pulled. Yeah, so basically, uh, and, and a lot of this is available on our covenant capacity tool. So if you want to go in and dig into this uh, yourself, um, yeah, you can go ahead and do that. But um, yeah, so like I said, we're going to be looking at European bonds. And one of the things to say up front is that there was obviously lower deal volume um, than most of us would have wanted in 2022. So there'll be a little bit of a skew in terms of the the data. And so because the sample size is smaller. Um, But I think the trends are still interesting to look at. The, The other thing to keep in mind is that in the beginning of the year, a lot of the deals that were sponsor LBOs, um, would have been uh, potentially underwritten deals. And I think we've talked about this ad nauseum in other other venues, but basically that um, when going into the market on an underwritten deal, if they were through their price caps, uh, the companies wouldn't have cared about any feedback on their covenants being too aggressive because the banks would have had to eat in the cost of the um, 
eating the cost of uh, going through the cap. So in those deals, the covenants would probably look more aggressive versus a deal where they actually had to um, pay attention to what the market said uh, if it was going to impact their pricing. So with those caveats, <laughs> we could dig into some of the uh, some of the information. Yeah, what so, are the headlines? Yeah, so the first one I just looking at is people are always worried about um, cash leaving the group. So restricted payments and permitted investments capacity. I think we're looking at this uh, from two perspectives. Uh, one is uh, sponsor versus non-sponsor, as well as transaction purpose. So LBO versus non-LBO. And frankly, there's a lot of overlap there, but the data is a little bit different, which is interesting. So um, if you look at LBO deals where the purpose was an LBO, they basically held steady the combined restricted payments and permitted investments capacity uh, year on year. So this is 2022 to 2021. Um, and that was basically around two times EBITDA for LBO deals. And in fact, only four deals were over 2.5 times. So basically, it was a, it was a relative concentration around two, but the, the overall average held uh, quite steady. If you look at non-LBO purpose deals, um, it dropped just a touch, 1.6 times EBITDA to 1.4. So not much of a change, probably not something worth looking at. Um, and then if you move over into the sponsor versus non-sponsor uh, criteria, again, sponsors held relatively stable, uh, and not, but non-sponsor dropped half a turn of EBITDA from a little over 1.6 to 1.14 times EBITDA. So when you're looking specifically at non-sponsor deals, um, including uh, whatever kinds of transaction it might have been, it dropped a lot, which means people were paying attention to it. And that's probably the batch of transactions where you'd be looking at um, companies that had to issue and had to pay attention to the market demands. So we'll dig into that more in the in the report. Um, but moving on, and uh, in, in, in still in the same space where we're worried about um, uh, you know value leaving the group, uh, we took a look at the ability for uh, companies to to make um, investments or restricted payments in unrestricted subsidiaries. So these are still entities that uh, the company owns, but it's not in the restricted group, meaning the covenants don't apply to it. So uh, we care about this because this is the infamous J. Crew and these others where, you know, assets are moved outside of the group, and then maybe you can um, lever up on top of those assets um, to the detriment of your current uh, um, creditors. So we, we looked at what the the total um, unrestricted subsidiary capacity is day one for transactions. Um, and it's interesting because, well, uh, RP and PBI capacity held relatively steady. Um, when you just look at unrestricted subsidiaries, um, the sponsors actually dipped a bit. Um, not a ton, but, but a little bit. And then if you look at non-sponsors, the capacity to do this halved. So clearly, people were focused on this um, and were asking people to have less capacity to, to move assets outside of their group. Um, and if you look at the LBO versus non-LBO, going back to the transaction purpose, both um, were either at or below 2020 levels. So they, they actually dropped um, you know, uh, a significant amount um, and kind of went back to pre-pandemic uh, pre levels, which I think is really interesting. And furthermore on that point, we're also seeing not only the capacity to do these kind of transactions dropping, we're also seeing some of the um, the, the legal language, uh, like a J Crew blocker, coming in more. So you know, even on some recent ref uh, refinancings, you have Itel Match or Isabel Morant. You had J Crew blockers being added that weren't previously in there, um, which is uh, you know probably a good thing for investors to see. And they're also um, filling in one of the holes that we had pointed out in one of our educational pieces, which is, you know, there's this idea that you can't transfer uh, material intellectual property 
but you could transfer an entity that held uh, intellectual property, which is kind of a silly loophole. But anyway, that's getting filled in, which is quite cool. So we'll talk about that in the report as well. Next up, we have Please Raise Responsibly, our topic on the pod where we discuss ESG. Today, I am very honoured to be joined by software engineer Tom Hudson. Thanks very much for joining us today, Tom. Thanks, Kat. It's lovely to be here. So the reason we've got Tom on here today is because we recently released our, well, I guess it's not that recent anymore. It was last year, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. But we've uh, put out our ESG company database and it was quite the task for the whole software engineering team. Um, but let's start off, Tom, if it's all right with you, by asking what, what makes a good company database or a database in general, actually? It's a really good question. Um, and I suspect you would get a different answer if you asked 100 people in a room. Um, my personal opinion, I think uh, what makes a good database is, is something that's right-sized uh, and, and a fit for what you want it to be used for. So for our ESG company database, um, we use what's called a relational database, uh, which is hosted on AWS uh, and uses uh, Postgres. So what kind of difficulties were there involved in making this particular database? I'd say the main one is how you enrich the data that is published uh, and how you normalize that. So company A reports a uh, thousand tons of, of CO2 every year. You can store that as text in the database, but there's no richness to that. You can't do anything with that information. Certainly you can't compare that against other companies or against previous reports. Right. So it currently the way that you've built it have you managed to enrich yeah there are certain features to how uh, esg data is presented so again i gave you that example of company a reporting a, a thousand tons of co2 there are a few features in that so obviously the the number a thousand is something that we'd want to pull out of there because then you can start to normalize that against other companies who've reported maybe two thousand uh, tons of co2 uh, if you store that information just as the text verbatim that you, you see in a, a sustainability report, there's no way really of comparing that, certainly uh, in a relational database. You, you need to compare a number with another number. So we'll, we'll pull out the kind of the rich data within those reports. If you had any pleas for companies out there uh, regarding this specific topic, what, what would they be? As an engineer, an API or a structured database uh, for us to all put that information into. My background is uh, chemical engineering and, and so the, the EU have a, a database with the European Chemicals Agency um, where hazardous substances are, are all populated in the same schema. So you can just pull that information out and it's standardized. So, it, you know, it, you, you can really drive that and get a lot of safety information. So it, blue sky thinking. If if we could have some kind of directive, maybe EU driven or something like that, that that standardizes how ESG data is is published, formatted, and stored, be that great would for be everyone. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> could you give us maybe the worst example that you've seen making this database? I think the the greatest challenge are uh, comes when the richness of this data that we talked about earlier is really buried deep within the documentation. Um, a, a lot of these ESG metrics that we want to follow, it's pretty obvious that 
these are things you would want to pull out of a sustainability report. So to put it midway through a long paragraph, 200 pages in to a sustainability report, it, it's going to make life harder to, to get to that information that's obviously so valuable. Are there any other developments? There's also in the pipeline document searches as well um, that, that start to look for common themes that you might want to heuristically filter out of documents so one example might be the use of cluster bombs you know we want to see that they don't exist within any of the documentation things like that uh, can be filtered out uh, so that's another thing in the in the pipeline next up we have the deep discussion where we discuss a topic a little more deeply i have with me here today emmett mcnally the Distressed Credit Analyst. Thanks so much for being with us today, Emmett. Hi, Kat. Thanks for having me. So, Soconomy, you're quite positive on the name, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Very interesting, and I'm, I'm certainly very bullish on it. Um, at a high level, I think there are risks that are being oversold, and I covered those risks in my view on those in a deep dive report I published back in early January. Oversold risks. That sounds interesting. Could you tell us a little bit more? Just to begin with some context, um, Seconomy is a pan-European electronics retailer, so large presence in Germany, but also um, in Southern Europe. It's a fallen angel, meaning it was once investment grade, but that was a long time ago, pre-pandemic. Um, it's now firmly rooted in high yield or left fin and was actually a very poor performer in terms of bond performance in 2020. Okay, so why is that? You say it's a retailer, that must be partly to blame. Although it's not just that, I would say retail in general obviously suffered macro headwinds in 2022, but its economy was one of the you know worst um, on that sort of spectrum of suffering, so to speak. Most high yield peers rallied with the market towards the back end of 2022, say from early October, um, I say most retailers because Maxeda, a Dutch DIY retailer, was also pretty beaten up. Um, and we actually had some content on that that readers may have seen. But anyway, its economy was by far the worst performer. Spreads on the company's 500 million 2026 bonds widened by 10.8 points or over 1,000 basis points across 2022. And the price was languishing in the low 60s at the turn of the year. That compares to many peers who had seen their spreads pretty much return to the start of year level. Right, so that's a pretty big contrast. What's behind that? Yeah, well, that's what caught our attention when we first started looking at it. The big thing that's driving that is economy's working capital cycle. So it's quite unique amongst your European retailers in that at the peak of the cycle, the company can carry upwards of 2 billion euros in negative working capital, which as a proportion of revenue is much higher than peers, and on paper looks almost like a telco company. Um, this is the big risk that was being priced in, in our view, that the worsening macro environment could see the company struggle to maintain its favorable payment terms in particular, giving rising rates and concerns around the possible withdrawal or tightening of supplier insurance terms. And what that means tangibly is that there was a risk the economy was facing a structural change in its credit profile. So change in leverage and a potential liquidity need where suppliers to start tightening their terms. Okay, so that sounds like quite a big risk. Uh, you said that you think the risks are oversold. Why is that? Well, I think it's important to frame that in, in the present. So Seconomy's bonds are up around seven points this year, 
or in spreads terms, they have tightened by just over 250 basis points. They're trading now just under 11%, 11 sorry, spread to maturity at a cash mid price of about 70. Uh, when we published our deep dive in January, that was before this recent rally. However, the thesis of the deep dive still stands, but I would say maybe some of the risks have now, the pricing of the risks has eased of late a little bit. Okay, so there is still time to take a look ahead of earnings and you believe there remains some overselling of risks. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's right. The big risk was a change in working capital dynamics over the Christmas period. That was somewhat ruled out by management during an earnings call in December. Um, our nine fin forecasts for FY23, which runs to September 2023, show there is lots of runway or headroom before bond coverage becomes a distinct concern, so to speak. The downside for FY23 puts net leverage at two and a half times or thereabouts based on management guidance. And that's still comfortably below a potential EV to EBITDA multiple of three and a half times to four times, which is where we think this economy would be valued. So the downside is still priced in and there is good headroom, as you say. So what kind of upside do you see if these risks continue to diminish? I would say there is still a wide dispersion in European retailer yields at the moment. But there is a group of high single B retailers trading in the high sixes to low eights yield area. This economy is still trading closer to a 13 handle for context. Um, and that, although it's not a perfect science, were this economy's bond yields to come down to the low eights area, there is still over 10 points of price upside. And at the higher end of the sixth sort of high sixes yield area, there is closer to 15 points of upside. Um, when we published our deep dive in January, we said there was sort of between 13 and 17 points of upside. And like I said, though the bonds have rallied recently, the market as a whole has rallied as well. So there is still plenty of attractive upside there. Attractive upside, manageable downside risks. This sounds almost too good to be true. I think there is a question mark around governance and management. Um, there's been high turnover in management. And there is arguably some precedence for them to set. Um, Q1 23 earnings next week will be an important touch point for that, like I said. But management is also planning a capital markets day in April or May. Um, and it's planning to speak then about how the business works and educate the market a little bit more on that. And also to outline more about how it plans to grow this very profitable segment it has, which is solutions and services. Um, so that's definitely another important day to look out for in terms of understanding the business better and getting a better sense of the outlook. Earnings next week, a capital markets day in April or May. What do you think the market needs to see for economies bonds to close the gap to peers more? Yeah, um, I think there will still be some concern around tightening working capital. That's something to look out for, certainly during earnings in particular. Um, management was pretty reassuring about working capital during an earnings call in December, but the risks may not be fully dissipated. Um, and then alongside that, the outlook management provided for FY23 will be important as well. Um, you know, the question being, is the company still on track to hit the better outcome that they provided in December? If you like this podcast, don't forget to like and share it. Tune in for the US edition next week. I'll be back the week after. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. As ever, there's plenty more information on ninefin.com slash insights if you're interested in any of the stories we've discussed today.